Welcome to the Women's Utilities Network, One for All podcast, our corner of the world where we'll be talking all things energy, water, sharing personal stories and debating female issues. Enjoy. So hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of the One for All podcast. I'm Holly Beeston. I'm one of the advocates here at One and today I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Gemma Stacey, who's a set to head at XBO, who are also a One partner. So on this episode, we're going to be discussing challenging outdated beliefs and concepts and the importance of relationships for women within the utility sector. And Gemma, I know from our previous conversations that this is a topic that you two are incredibly passionate about and we're really excited to have you here with us today to discuss this further so um, welcome to the podcast Gemma. Thanks Holly. Before we begin Gemma can you tell us a little bit more about you and what you do at XBO? Yeah of course so I've been in the energy industry for just over 20 years now um, starting out just as the market was opening up to competition and seeing the huge changes that brought for consumers and businesses and for technology as a whole I've worked across various sectors of the industry over the years, um, including regulation, retail, oil and gas, um, generation, and I began consulting around 10 years ago. I now lead the energy, retail and water sector within XPO Technology UK. Um, so I'm responsible for our clients in that space, um, the PL and their growth. Fabulous. So obviously, Around our, our sort of conversation and topic, why and what do you think is important when it comes to relationships in the utility sector? Okay, so I think relationships are incredibly important, both in and out of work for a person's happiness. And when I'm talking about relationships, I'm talking about connection. So real connection with others, which isn't just important, it's actually vital to, to our long term health. There's been lots of studies on this and the most consistent findings in the last 85 years of study is that positive relationships keep us happier, healthier and they help us live longer as well. And without those positive relationships, both our mental and our physical health um, are affected because when we're not psychologically happy, this can have physical manifestations in our body. So at times of stress, this is when we're in fight or flight mode and the body self-healing mechanisms are effectively flipped off mm. um, so it, it's not concerned in this time with preventing infection or fighting cancer or avoiding heart disease because it thinks it's about to get eaten by a tiger when it's in that state <laughs> whereas when the body is at peace the parasympathetic nervous system takes the lead and the body's natural self-healing mechanisms are activated so it actually knows how to heal itself so when we do this, I guess we do this sort of automatically when our basic needs are being met. There are three basic human emotional needs, which are um, autonomy. So feeling like you are in control or, you know, you have a choice. Competence. So having an optimal level of challenge, feeling confident in your ability to complete tasks. And importantly, and my kind of main point really is connection. So feeling connected to others around you, be that your children, your friends, colleagues, a spouse, um, having a good quality social network and feeling like other people care about you because it's only when we cultivate those true connections that leads us to that place of peace and, and we only get there through being almost authentic. You're absolutely right there because even without one of those three areas, 
I don't think you can truly be authentic either. There's a quote I really like, and it's um, mm-hmm. the privilege of a lifetime is be- to become who you truly are. Going off off that as well, being authentic is often something that individuals and particularly women, to be honest, find quite challenging in the workplace. So what do you think it takes to be truly authentic, Gemma? No, I think to be really authentic, you have to have vulnerability. You've got to be prepared to show vulnerability, transparency and compassion, because that is what lays the groundwork on which the best relationships can be built. There's a bit of association, I think, with vulnerability um, and kindness with with being soft, but it's not. It's strong to show who you are, to put yourself out there is to be vulnerable. And that is a choice we can make. And to choose to do that over perhaps maintaining the status quo and maybe hiding a bit of yourself is brave. And when we do these things, you know, we we mostly get good results because we build up these layers of trust, mutual respect, understanding and often friendship. Of course, it doesn't always happen. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm I'm grateful for those moments, too, because it very quickly identifies your people. We're not for everyone, are we? And, that, and that's OK. And there are differences between strong relationships and connections and professional courteous ones. But we need a mix. And I, think I said it before, it's quality, not quantity. So I do really think it's important to have those connections. So properly authentic connections in different spheres of your life, both in and out of the world space. And I think sometimes thinking of of my friendships with colleagues and people that I've met through work, some of them have lasted way beyond when we've worked with one another. I have a friend that was a bridesmaid and we weren't working together at at the time. And I've had some some of the best friendships that I've got in my life right now, even though our lives have evolved so much, have come from working relationships. And probably because you were being yourself with them as well and you opened up. Absolutely. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? Because it, it's quite easy to put on a mask when you get up and, and yeah. go into work for the day. And it's, 100%. I think it's being, like you say, brave enough to not hide your real identity when you're in these situations, whether that be at a networking event, whether it be at an expo, whether it be in mm. the office or at a client mm. meeting. I think there always has to be a degree of reality. And in my opinion, since we've been through sort of COVID and things like that as well, I think people are much more susceptible to be open about their personal lives in more of a work environment because so many people were let in, weren't they, during that time? Definitely. And, you know, I'm not saying that I'm the poster girl for this or anything. (laughs) It's still difficult, but I have definitely, it's definitely something that I've been working on lately because I have to do a lot of networking within my own job. And I have found that, you know, when I'm just myself, I'm not trying, I don't leave a bit of myself at home. You know, I get much better results. And those relationships I find are much stronger. I don't know if it's the same for you. Yeah, yeah, they are because they're, because they're authentic, because you're being real. And then that kind of gives the other, you can almost see them take a breath out and relax because you're being real. And then they can, that sort of gives them permission to be real as well. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think as well, it, it enables you to be a lot more understanding of other things that are going on when you've got an insight into their wider world rather than what's going on with the situation that you're dealing with with them. It's very easy to make a quick judgment but we're all you know multifaceted aren't we with with different stuff going on. So as a a woman yourself working in the the utilities space how how do you see and feel 
that women see success within the industry? I think this is really tricky because when we look at accomplishments or wealth, which can be a byproduct of traditional success, it's you know it's generally defined by achievement, advancement, or status. But mm. that's how we seem to measure whether people are doing well. But in my opinion, the real measure of wealth is the strength of our relationships and how, like you say, you know how you hold on to those relationships over time or how you cultivate meaningful new ones as you move through your career and hopefully as you do achieve success in what that means for you. I think there's a bit of a danger zone we can go into as well when I say we are, I mean society really, industry as a whole, because success in, in general and speaking very general terms fuels the ego. Mm. So when you when you feel like you're winning at life, that that can be a dangerous place to be because it can bring out the best but also the worst in people, you know. It can bring out a monster or it can allow the opportunity for something really great to come out. And I feel like we, why do we, have got into a bit of a rut and, and we sort of believe, we, we follow these messages that we see in, on social media. And, you know, the more we perpetuate this message, the more of it we see because it's seen as money and success as being the thing rather than how we get there. Yeah, it absolutely does. And I think when you're looking at, your success as an individual if you measure your success on relationships then often that can be very much an ongoing thing individuals will move businesses they will get promotions they'll have more autonomy in in certain situations and for your relationship to withstand that test of time there needs Mm -hmm. to be something more than just a business conversation in our world I suppose but I also think when when you're talking about that danger of bringing out a monster um, Mm -hmm. and the ego getting in the way it it actually reminds me of an audiobook that I've been listening to recently by um, Jensen Serro and the audiobooks You Are a Badass and it's all about manifestation and bringing things into your life but oh my god that is so my language (laughs) (laughs) but then there's also a, a, a huge element around your ego getting in the way of who you want to be and I think it can be a a, such a thing that holds individuals back and I think sometimes you can get a little bit complacent with what you have um, Mm -hmm. and if you're not consistently developing and working on those relationships they they can quickly be be snapped up elsewhere can't they as well well, such a big part of who we are is defined by who we surround ourselves with as well mm. and where we put our efforts. So if we're happy, it generally means that we're surrounded by people who lift us up and help us achieve what we need to achieve or what we want to achieve and cheer us on and we do the same for them. Absolutely. And you definitely need to read that book as well, because it's all about about surrounding yourself by people that take you to a a higher vibration of energy. So um, I love that. I'm definitely going to that. Thank you. No problem. And I suppose talking about all of these elements and egos and perceptions, Mm. it, it also brings in the importance of that diversity and inclusion piece, don't you think? Definitely. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently, because when we think about diversity and when we think about a lack of diversity, we typically think white men, don't we? Mm. Let's be honest. But if we look at the statistics, 
Only 29.5% of the UK's population is made up of white, heterosexual, able-bodied men. So they're actually a minority group, but they still make up the vast majority of top roles. So this is no surprise to anyone. They're 66% occupy the top 40 UK roles, 90% of the top 20 UK roles. But how is that possible when they are a minority group? And why, therefore, do we refer to the inclusion of other groups as diverse? So... I think we need to rethink the entire diversity and inclusion agenda, you know, even mm. down to semantics, because I don't know what you think, but you know, I think of, often the organisations miss the importance of integrating DNI into the very fabric of their organisations. You tell it me. Some, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it can often be a slogan, or it can be yeah. something that is sort of put onto marketing material. Yeah. But when you delve in the organization themselves what are they doing day to day to really exactly. Im- drive and improve their dni agenda completely you know they shouldn't be just you know nice to have offshoot projects should they it's like no. <laughs> that they need proper robust metrics and and to be you know clear links to the organizational goals because diversity and inclusion as well they often get lumped together don't they mm. we talk about them both but they're two separate things so in my view, anyway, diversity is like the mix of the individual talents that you've got, um, the identities, the perspectives um, and the lived experiences within the workplace. But that's your diversity. But your inclusion is something separate. Your inclusion is not just having the people there. It's harnessing that the opportunities of that mix of people and creating an environment where every voice is heard and every person matters. I think there's a I can't remember the quote exactly but I think it's something like without inclusion there isn't diversity or it might be the other way around now and now I've confused myself yeah um but they go hand in hand but they're two very different things aren't they yeah and as you say (laughs) often just a bit of a tick box exercise we see a lot of it out there and I think more needs to be done I think it is in some spheres but I don't think it's going far enough at the moment at all Absolutely. And I think it's a a case of some businesses do really well with it. And typically the larger ones do quite well because they have the money and the time to invest in making sure that those strategies are there. But I think the reality is that there are a lot of really simple things that can be done to make sure Mm -hmm. that everybody feels included and everyone feels like they have a voice. And that's probably one of the most important things, in my opinion, anyway. Definitely. I think we just get so focused on our day to day that things like this can get pushed to the bottom of the pile. And you like you say, there are some companies doing amazing things, but as a whole, I think I think we need to, to have more focus on it. I don't, also, I'm very aware I'm not making any tips here. <laughs> I'm just raising the point. I think that we need to be doing more generally. And awareness is is the the biggest thing at the moment. I mm. think ignorance is bliss. Yes, but mm in order to start to impact change we need to keep talking about it it's not something that's just going to happen mm. out of thin air ultimately um lots of people need to be aware of what's going on and yeah. to keep talking about it raises that awareness and and gets the the wheels in motion to start to then build the strategies and put all of the thought and the projects and the programs in place to be able to make that delivery something that's tangible yeah exactly I suppose with that how how do you think that 
this then impacts women in the sector what do you think the knock-on effects are that you feel are, are sort of culminated as a result of this well we hear a lot about imposter syndrome don't we we do <laughs> um and again I've been thinking about this a bit lately because I want to sort of challenge it as a concept okay um I, because I don't think imposter syndrome is our problem to solve as as women it is typically women that suffer from it I'm not saying that you know it's exclusively women but mainly um can I just do a bit of a history lesson for a minute here when I, absolutely got... <laughs> so if we go back to the 1890s when the bicycle was redesigned from sort of cumbersome inoperable machine with one large wheel at the front and one at the back a penny farthing to Mm. two wheels of the same size and cycling really took off it took off for women in a big way and suddenly women could meet each other from town to town and suffragists could meet each other and they could wear different clothes and you know trousers replaced hoop skirts and yeah I'd like bicycle. to see you try and ride a bike in a hoop skirt oh my god I wouldn't <laughs> try and ride a bike anyway to be honest but let alone in a hoop skirt <laughs> <laughs> not really proving my point here am I but um the bicycle you know it was taking them into a whole new world of opportunities it was also threatening the status quo and and some found this quite jarring because <laughs> Uh, and that that was compounded by uh, the rise of cycling for women. Um, there was a Victorian doctor who came up with um, a disease they called bicycle face. Um, and it was strictly a woman's disease, even though lots of men were riding bikes as well. And the symptoms included flushed cheeks, a hard clenched jaw, or the effort to maintain one's balance tended to produce a weird sorry wearied and exhausted bicycle face so basically it was invented to stop women moving forward to keep them off their bikes because essentially you know the bicycle represented literally a vehicle for a growing feminist movement and I think so coming back to my original point in your question imposter syndrome I just feel like imposter syndrome is modern day bicycle face because I mean look back at the origins of imposter syndrome the concept first emerged there when women started going off to university and college and started entering the workforce in in droves so it was imposter syndrome just like bicycle face was a reaction to women's progress and we're led to believe that if we feel underqualified for the job it's because we are and therefore the problem must be us so I think I, I'm still working on this now, really. But over the years, I've realised that I'm not the problem. But it's also not my responsibility. And it's not our responsibility as women to fix the problem. Yet we're led to believe it is. You know, we need to make it all go away or at least have a go at covering it up. And um, we get loads of tips and tricks on this, don't we? Get yourself a mentor, get an exec sponsor. There are loads of books and articles out there telling us how to overcome imposter syndrome. But all of these are just extra burdens that we put on ourselves to solve a problem. That's a really you know? good point, actually. And and more often than not, things like allyship and empowerment and support, whether that's in the workplace or your personal life, that support to be able to go and do something because you want to do it, not because you're trying to break any norms, not because you're trying to do something for the first time, but actually the reality is as a, a woman you should have just as much opportunity as anybody else there shouldn't be anything like that that 
Exactly. And putting the onus back on that group of people who are already at a disadvantage to fix the problem Mm. is just exacerbating the problem. And the gender pay gap, I think, is a great example of this. You know, oh, gosh, it, don't get me started on this one. <laughs> I mean, it's barely budged globally in over two decades. But what are we telling women? We're, we're saying know your worth, you know, ask for more. When why aren't we just telling com- our asking companies to pay women fairly? Pay disparities could be solved overnight. And yet again, the burden is put on women to sort it out. So I don't think imposter syndrome is inevitable. I think it's the result of a long time of structural inequality, not individual inadequacy. And it is designed to keep our focus on our own alleged inadequacies. And I just think we need to together (laughs) really challenge that. But that's my little uh, soapbox. No, it's really interesting, actually. And I think this is this is something that's super interesting, to be fair, Gemma, because challenging the typical things that we're hearing, but Mm. substantiating that with evidence, it's really made me think. uh, And you're right, it's not it's not inevitable. But if we continue Mm. to give ourselves that as an excuse, Mm -hmm. How are we going to move forwards on the gender pay gap piece? We're we're taught in a typically British way that we don't talk about money. We don't talk about how much things cost and how much we earn. And it's it's not good to talk about any financial difficulties that you're in as an individual. And that's always been ingrained in us generationally for years. And it's almost as though there's been a little bit of an awakening since women started to become leaders of industry and companies that suddenly the reality is that it is something that comes up and salary surveys happen and yeah. information is shared and then suddenly we've we've identified an astronomical difference and yeah. it's frightening and it's not the same in every business in every role but mm. it's like you say it's very easy to resolve oh they could do it overnight literally overnight and it shouldn't be a taboo subject, should it? And I think this comes no. back to the point about being authentic. Let's be honest, really. Why do most of us come to work? You know, we're, we're coming to work to earn money to pay for whatever we need to pay for out of work. And mm. therefore, why have we been told we can't talk about it? Why can't we compare? And hopefully we're seeing things moving there, but it's been it's been very slow. But like you say, this is sort of step one. Mm in a number of steps that need to be taken definitely to get it done and I think you know one of the reasons why I'm talking about this and I know that I'm not coming up with any particular tips or strategies but I just wanted to raise the point and raise the conversation and hopefully it resonates with some people but I think we have an obligation to leave what we found a little bit better than it was before and Mm. for the younger people now coming into the workforce I hope they don't have as many challenges and struggles as I have done as a woman in a traditionally male space because there has been a lot again that's not pointing the finger at anyone it's it is just a fact but we've seen a lot of progress over the last 20 years of my career and that's great but there's still a lot we need to do I think absolutely and no matter how incremental each of those steps are as long as they're steps in the right direction then that's a positive right we shouldn't be afraid to raise these issues and we shouldn't be afraid to have the conversation. 
ultimately you're right there there's still such a lot left to do and mm. to be honest I hope that anybody um listening to this really sort of thinks about that and perhaps reframes the imposter syndrome piece in their own mind because as we've we've spoken about you have always your your own worst inner critic aren't you and <laughs> and if you start to enable yourself to believe that actually you don't have imposter syndrome and actually you could reframe that and see it as your next learning and development sort of piece to overcome yourself by throwing yourself into these situations by asking the questions and for standing up for what you think should yeah. be happening in an environment that's perhaps a little bit more challenging it's mm. just words you know anxiety nerves and worry are just a natural symptom of pushing yourself a little bit outside your comfort zone I'm sure we all get that sometimes and that's normal that's just part of growth like you say there's there's still a lot left to do and I, I just want to thank you for for coming on and sharing your thoughts and experiences you you've certainly given me some food for thought Gemma and uh, we really appreciate you uh, joining us on this podcast episode so thank you no thanks Holly and thanks for the book recommendation as well I'm definitely going to give that a listen no worries <laughs>